Hello, welcome to the Pink Smoke Podcast. I'm John Cribbs, co-founder of thepinksmoke.com, and I'm here with the other co-founder, Mr. Christopher Thunderberg. How you doing, Chris? I am doing very well. Thank you, John. I'm actually not doing well. I have pneumonia today, and uh, I'm, I'm a wreck at all times, is, is the thing about me. Do you just want to switch and have this podcast be about uh, my mental health issues instead of being about the Glitter Dome. Joseph Wambaugh's The Glitter Dome. We're going to refocus. Go. Mental health. Let's hear about it. Mental health. Then we'll, everybody then we'll take everybody some calls. needs it. Don't take it for granted. <laughs> we're going to take some calls. We're, this is now the, this is the, actually, we're switching over to the Frasier cast. This is a clever way of announcing <laughs> that we're going episode by episode through the history of Frasier. Starting with the Shannon, Shannon Tweed episode. <laughs> there are two Shannon Tweed episodes. We'll, we'll cover both of them. Well, yeah. I mean, John, let's not get ahead of ourselves. What what are we doing today, though? But we are we are going to be talking about a book. Of one of the themes is mental health. I think very yeah, about, very very tough book for for things like that. Yeah. Uh, the Glitter Dome by Joseph Wamba. Wamba. It's got to be Wamba. Wamba. Yeah, it's Wamba. Wamba. It's a, fun, it's a fun name to say, one way or another. But uh, making it sound like a crazy word. <laughs> uh, Wamba, though, is uh, a guy I've wanted to get into for a while. I'm glad I finally read one of his fiction books. I've only read his nonfiction book, The Onion Field, previously. Yeah. So it was fun. This to get was into. your recommendation. And, uh, and I had not, he wasn't even on my radar. So I'm, I'm glad you recommended this, John. I'm glad I did, too. I uh, didn't know much about him. I knew he was a. Uh, uh, LAPD officer, 14 years, who started writing uh, LAPD-based novels. Did you know much about him previously? I knew nothing. And it's actually a funny thing. When I finished this book, you know, we're enthusiastic amateurs on the Pulp Fiction podcast. We, we don't uh, go after works that we know incredibly in detail and that we know everything about. It's an exploratory podcast. We're trying to discover new things and learn and expand ourselves and all of that sort of stuff. So I didn't even realize I had read two books by him before this. I thought I had no experience with Joseph Lombaugh, but I had read The Onion Field, like you, and I also read, he wrote this book called The Blood Thing. He, he writes about police, Wamball, but he also writes nonfiction in addition to his very true crime-esque fiction. Um, the blooding is about the uh, first time that DNA evidence was used to identify and bring down a murder suspect in, uh, in the world, but it's set in the UK. And I had read that. It's very good, but I wouldn't have associated it with a real novelist. It's basically like a, a, a particularly... Uh, well-written and sort of gripping true crime book. And I would say The Onion Field to me, which I had read when I was very young, I read that when I was a teenager, um, is the same sort of thing, that it's, that it's, uh, it's a little bit closer to a novel. It's more novelish than, than The Blooding. But I was a little familiar with him uh, in that way, finding out about him, doing some research. As you mentioned, he was a police officer in Los Angeles for 14 years. He was born in 1937, so he was a cop mainly during the 60s in Los Angeles. He started out as a patrolman, and uh, by the time his writing career had taken off, he was a detective sergeant. Um, 
like we've both said, he was best known for writing The Onion Field, which was turned into a movie in 1979. Case it's based on was very notorious at the time. It was a really famous case, but it's kind of forgotten these days. Um, a pair of robbers guys who had been doing a string of robberies panicked during a routine traffic stop and kidnapped the officers who pulled them over. And the, the sort of the notorious horror of the case is that one of the robbers misunderstood the little Lindbergh laws that were written after Charles Bender's baby was kidnapped that made kidnapping in some cases a capital offense in California. So these fucking idiots decided because they had kidnapped the police officers they're already facing the death penalty. They've got to kill them anyway. And it's one of those truly senseless, truly ridiculous crimes where they, you know, they were not incredibly hardened felons. What they were worried about being caught for, the robberies, were not super duper serious felonies. And it just escalated in this absurd way that only true crime stuff can. Um, the film's probably most famous for being the breakthrough performance of James Woods. Well, interestingly, it actually starred immediately previously. His movie right before uh, The Onion Field was another Wamba adaptation, The Choir Boys, which is a film that Wamba famously hated. He like, despised The Choir Boys. Uh, and he didn't get along with Robert Aldrich, who was the director. And that's uh, one of Aldrich's last movies. And it's definitely the last film he made that was the kind of like hard-nosed, grim work he was famous for. Um, but still, Wambaugh wasn't happy with them. And that's um, interesting, too, right? Because we're going to be getting into this book and what it's about. It seems sort of like a reaction to his experience with the Choir Boys movie. But, but Aldrich's uh, take on it was very specifically, I don't feel bad for cops. You know, I don't yes. think that you should... That, that, that cops should be... That cops wallowing around with self-pity is an interesting cinematic thing to represent i would like to see them more being exposure of their corruption of them more being they'd be dirty being yeah. drunken assholes right so yeah he, he basically went entirely against the book and the whole idea of the book and a lot of uh wamba's writing to, to read about it is that you know he really wants to get into what being a cop does to you mentally you know like some of the yeah. things the, the sort of ptsd that some of these guys end up having just through the experience of being in Los Angeles and being in this crazy environment in the 60s and 70s and, and early 80s. Yeah, and Aldrich specifically objected to the comparison between soldiers and police officers. He, you know, the idea, I can't, I don't know the exact quote, but Aldrich was saying that soldiers are drafted when they have post-traumatic stress disorder. That's like a community's responsibility. Cops sign up to be cops. It's a volunteer force. So if they can't hack it, that's on them, which seems like at best a fucked up opinion. And, and Aldrich at that point in his career is not doing his best work. And there's a lot of broad comedy in the choir boys. And, and at that well, point, to be fair, Aldrich to be fair, my two favorite Aldrich movies are from the seventies, which to what are your two favorite emperor of the North pole and, uh, Ozana's raid. Really? You like those better than, than kiss me deadly and the dirty dozen. <laughs> I, those, as far as Aldrich films with his like fingerprints on them, I prefer those two movies above everything else. Those are the ones that feel wow. like Aldridge auteur for me. I Big fan of those that. movies. I'll Big fan of those fan movies. That. But I agree. He's, he's definitely going back and forth between interesting failures and generic hits that aren't very interesting. 
At he also time. makes a bunch of like comedies. He ended his career making comedies and the choir boys actually fits in with that. Um, I've seen the choir boys movie. I've not read the choir boys book. Uh, I can imagine what it's like having seen the movie and read The Glitter Dome. The Glitter Dome belongs to the sleazy cop genre. And that brings us to, to our, we do before every, every uh, one of these talks, an aperitif uh, pairing for the film and then a dessert pairing at the end of it. John and I each pick a, an artwork to pair with it beforehand to prime your, your appetite, to get you into the right mindset, and then one at the end to sort of bring you down out of it or to, to provide a, a, a cherry on top for your experience of what we're talking about. So let me ask you with this, what is your aperitif selection for you this? Set, you set me up very nicely by saying you had seen the Choir Boys movie but not read the book because I was going to go with the obvious choice of the New Centurions, the movie, uh, directed by ah. Richard Fleischer in 1972. Uh, I've seen the movie. I have not read the book. I enjoy the movie very much, though. It is, it is another Wombaugh. It it's uh, the first. It's the first novel he wrote while he was still uh, in the precinct. Uh, same sort of thing, although yeah, just to read about things he didn't hadn't quite found his voice yet, or like some of the themes that he would strike on. Apparently, Choir Boys was where he really came into his own. Um, but with New Centurions, he's still exploring a lot of the same issues with like the seasoned cops who've been at it for twenty years. They're just trying to get to their pension. They're trying to retire and get out of the life. And then these idealistic new rookies who come in. And uh, Stacey Keach is the young cop in this one. Ed Lauder, the great Ed Lauder, is also in the film. Apparently, George C. Scott demanded he be cast in the film. So, good one, yeah. George C. Scott. Um, the poster for this movie has is one of those things that one of those uh, promotions that really uh, emphasizes the fact that it's based on a best-selling novel. Like it's like a book, a giant book, yeah. like all the characters coming out of it, you know? And the yeah, tagline... Yeah. It has that crazy poster, yeah. No, Someone yeah, the tagline... But it's a nuts poster. It is, it's funny. And the, and the tagline is literally the nationwide bestseller about cops by a cop. You know, they really sold that as, you know, you want to see this movie because this is the real thing coming straight from the source. Um, literally, it's like the, the characters are like pouring out of the book pages on the right. poster. <laughs> It's right, like the it makes concept it... of the poster. It's like reading Rainbow. <laughs> exactly. I mean, it looks like a Mad Magazine spoof, which is funny because there actually is a Mad Magazine spoof, The New Comedians, which came out a few months later. Um, guys, guys, I'm going to need you to workshop that title. They didn't think about while. that one too long. But uh, I highly recommend the movie. There's a great indicator Blu-ray that just came out recently. So that's definitely something you should check out uh, if you're interested in Wamba but don't have time to sit down and read one of the books. And uh, that's interesting too, because it was written, the screenplay was Sterling Siliphant, right? You've uh, with your, just recently, you've, you've published that article on the collaborations between Lee Marvin and Sam Peckinpah for TV. So you're really on a, a Sterling Siliphant kick, aren't you? I am. Apparently I'm his biggest fan. <laughs> I wasn't aware of that. Biggest and most critical fan. <laughs> My aperitif pairing is to uh, talk about the sleazy cop genre. So I'm going to tell you, keep it tied on the James Woods tip as well. I'm recommending Cop from 1988, directed by James B. Harris, which is a uh, sleazy movie. It's about sex and sort of sex conspiracies, which ties into the Glitter Dome. It's about cops who are 
out of control. It's specifically about a James Woods cop who's trying to be a family man, who's trying to be a, a good dad, but just his police work is making him into a lunatic and he's sort of drowning himself in self-loathing and cheap sex and transgressive sex um, and is caught up in a world that's sort of changed around him. In 1988, it feels a little behind the curve uh, in a way that the novel, uh, The Glitter Dome, the era it's from, um, or maybe not The Glitter Dome, but certainly uh, Wamba's earlier work are about, you know, the new crime that's overtaking America in the 60s and 70s, where things are not just getting worse, they're somehow getting worse in a different way. And these sort of cultural war lines are being drawn. And COP is about that. It's about the conflicts between like machismo and feminism and authority and and uh, sexual transgression and being wanting to be uh, open and wanting to be, uh, it's about like, a girl who's gang raped in high school because of her feminist poetry club, right, is what causes one of the main inciting incidents in it. And boy, is it sleazy. Boy, is it a sleazy, sleazy movie. It's somehow a real movie, though. It's not like a Death Wish purely, Death Wish 3 type wish fulfillment fantasy. Um, it's it's interesting. It's a very interesting film. It's worth seeing. It has a it has a real like wham to the credits ending. One of the all timers, and uh, and that's my aperitif to pair it's, with it. It's critical of the characters in all the right ways, right? So there's yes. not like any kind of a dirty hairy. You know, what's the are we lauding these guys? You know, it's definitely calling them to task for their sleaziness, right? Yes. And Woods's performance in particular seems very aware of not making him a hero yeah he plays it like you can't root for him he wants to remind you that this guy is not a badass well in that era nobody did sleazy better than james woods i mean even when you know he's playing the bad guy in um bestseller but even when he's playing like the the hero the the hero cop in the hard way he comes off just like such a sleazeball you know just nobody can do it like he could yeah nobody even in videodrome he's like you know what would that say about you when he's like hitting on nikki brand at the uh, right at the thing he's a he's a very uh smarmy actor obviously uh he's been you know a lot of people don't like him now because he's a lunatic off the screen but he's he's an actor that i really really enjoy being but, uh, but he still know. loved his fictional sleaze we still appreciate yeah. that very much. His real life sleaze hasn't ruined his fictional sleaziness for us, fortunately. <laughs> so let's dig into the Glitter Dome here, this sleazy cop uh, masterpiece that we've just read. Yes. Um, and it is, it's like a masterpiece of what it is, right? I think so. I think, you know, I, with, with fiction, crime fiction, I definitely try to kind of read books that have characters that are a lot more morally questionable that are kind of going through the system and uh, obviously got tons of PIs and detective fiction that can get really cliched and old after a while, the series novels, especially, but when you, it's something that's set within a precinct and within a very specific time in a city, you know, it's something that is always engaging, kind of like interesting to follow. So I appreciate, you know, both that there's like historical context to this and also that, 
we're getting like inside dirt on these guys, you know, like we really are getting into the psychological. I mean, I think Wamba, what he does best in this book is that he almost effortlessly moves from the, you know, perspective of one character to another within a scene, which is usually something I hate in writing yeah, because you know, it's really hard to do the, the third person narration part of mm-hmm. it sort of yes. seamlessly flows between characters where you realize that you're suddenly in the head of the junkie that they're you know interrogating without realizing it especially when it's you know there's a central mystery involved and people have yeah. stuff to hide you think it'd be really difficult to have these characters to jump into one one character's mind and then into another without revealing stuff that we're not supposed to know yet yeah but let's not get too ahead of ourselves. Let's let's talk about the plot a little. So okay, let's talk about the plot. So it opens with quoting a song by Ian Whitcomb. It's Hollywood, which uh, I listened to just before we started recording. It's uh, a very jaunty, like British invasion uh, song, an ironic sort of jingle. It's very Eric Idle esque. I would say I would be shocked to learn that the Monty Python guys were not fans of this this guy who made this song because yeah, uh, it's got that kind of a tone to it. So it's you know ironic and it's you know. Um, so Hollywood is what we're going to be talking about here, right? These characters are going to uh, bump heads with Hollywood moguls and actors cops in Hollywood. Hollywood exactly. Cops. So, <clears throat> so that's what we're dealing with. The eponymous glitter dome is uh, a bar, a um, end of watch bar that these cops end up at. That is pretty much, you know, a dive, uh, like a very depressed, like the whole first chapter it's just a very depressing portrait of uh, one of these guys who goes to this place and just wallows away in his sorrow, gets drunk, you know, tries to pick up a woman and it's a disaster. And it ends with him almost committing suicide because the night has been so bad to him. Um, and yet this is a place that these cops love to go to that they get upset when, you know, they have extra stuff to do and they, they're not going to make it to the glitter dome that night. So it kind of sets up this sort of interesting contrast right away. Where yeah, it's they like place. shirk writing citations that they're supposed to because they want to get to the Glitter Dome. They got to get to the Glitter Dome as fast as they can, even though all they're going to find at the Glitter Dome are, you know, sad barmaids and, uh, well, you know. There's like cop fucking groupies is the yeah. whole idea about the, the Glitter Dome is that's full of these women that come there that don't seem super appealing, but that are just, they want to come fuck cops and everybody's going to get drunk and have this cheap, horrible sex. Exactly. So that's not a fun, it's not a fun portrait there, um, but it's something that these cops love to do for some reason it's because it's just where they go to wind down and it's just the routine and you kind of appreciate immediately that these guys have a routine that they follow to kind of stay sane, you know, and the Glitter Dome is very much a part of that. But the sleaze that they find outside the Glitter Dome, uh, you know, makes it look like uh, Disneyland, basically. So yeah. it's a kind of an episodic narrative. There is one central murder that everything kind of ties into, but it's episodic in that it follows uh, three, maybe four uh, sets of, of cops, two homicide detectives, two narcs, uh, as they're kind of going about their uh, life and sort of running into these incidences and everything, it moves between them back and forth. Uh, so let me just ask you right off the, the front, Chris, which pair of cops were you most entertained by the antics? Entertained. This is, this is the problem with talking about this book, too. Is this, <laughs> is a, this is a brutal book. This is a book full of degradation directed at women. This is a book full 
full of casual racism from the characters. Uh, this is a book full of negativity and just scum, right? And there's some truly brutal parts. That opening chapter you described where one of the, the main cops, we fall around, one of the homicide cops, picks up this like older lady and then he can't get an erection and she's like furious at him and it is brutally depressing. It is brutally depressing and it ends with him chewing on his gun sights as they say. But there's so much in this book that is really depressing uh, and really gross and really hard to get behind. Uh, One of the reasons I've never... I was getting, let me get to, one of the reasons I've never read much in the sleazy cop genre, it's a genre I don't like and don't read much in, is because I'm like Aldrich. I don't have much, uh, I don't want to say sympathy. I think I have more sympathy for police officers than most people like me do, but I don't like police officers and I don't like being around them and I don't like hearing about their problems. So I don't read much of this stuff, especially like the woe is me stuff, like this book. But there's also, All of that said, there's a huge amount of humor and comedy in this book. It is almost at times a comedy. And so when John says, what did you find most entertaining? Any answer, if I answer, you're going to be like, you found that entertaining? You're fucked up (laughs) if you read the book. I just wanted to tread lightly before I answered because the most um, impactful sequences to me are the street monsters which are, they're, this is how they're described in the book. They're a pair of patrolmen, Buckmore Phipps, and what are their two names, John? Uh, Gibson Hand and Buckmore Phipps. Gibson Hand and Buckmore Phipps. And the book describes them the street monsters. They're guys who uh, wanted to be a certain kind of like uh, riot emergency cop because he had a higher chance of being able to murder people and kill suspects. And he kills so wantonly that he gets booted back down to being a patrolman. They are awful people they are awful awful human beings but they are recognizably awful-ish there is a certain kind of police officer you have met in your life that is this kind of person who's both somehow lazy and too uptight who both like doesn't give a shit and won't let anything slide you know what i mean that kind of police officer who clearly doesn't care but also is like a stickler and these guys sequences are such grim gallows humor based on monstrous people and the book wants you to know i these are monsters um that it's hard for me to answer anything with buck morphips and gibson hand is unforgettable and so i don't know if those are my favorite stuff in the book but certainly those are the ones that stick out what about for you john the the pairs are there's basically a pair of main characters marty and mackie al mackie and uh and marty wellborn they're basically the main characters they're the ones investigating this mogul who's been murdered nigel st Clair, a studio mogul has been murdered found in a bowling alley parking way and they get handed this case Because the cops, the detectives that were on it before them, Simon and Schultz, aren't getting any results. And it's a high-profile case. So then you have Simon and Schultz, who are guys who have the, like, super buzz cuts, big, like, six-foot-five, 230-pound, born cops, total squares. There's their stuff. There's the street monsters. And then there's a pair of undercover 
uh, narcotics officers called Weasel and Ferret, who are also a big part of it. And those are the four basic sets of cops. John, what, what was your favorite? So it should, be, it should be mentioned that the reason that Aloysius Mackey and his partner, Martin Wellborn, get this, uh, this murder handed to them is that they have a reputation for uh, moving clear homicides to proving that they were suicides. <laughs> that they have in yeah. the past. Exactly. So that's, that's just kind of defines our main characters there, right? That they're two guys who wrap up cases. They're not guys who yeah. are out there necessarily to find justice, to bring the, the culprit in. Uh, yeah. You know, that's the guys, kind of cops these guys like are. A guy who was shot twice in the back of the head committed suicide. Exactly. Right? And that the, they, the, they the implication is that they're given this case to, to solve the Nigel St. Clair murder, basically by figuring out a way to, to, to convincingly say he killed himself in this uh, bowling alley parking lot. Um, yeah, or it was an overdose or there was something overlooked that explains it that's not plausible but will allow them to clear it. Exactly. Uh, so they're very interesting characters. I have to say I really enjoyed Ferret and Weasel, though, the the young, bearded, undercover narcs, just because they're such, you know, like yeah. a Cheech and Chung type of duo and just everything they do is unbelievably incompetent and infuriatingly frustrating how they miss subjects that they're on a stakeout for because they fall asleep or are drinking beer um just yeah. sort of there just just it's their way of like uh the way they they shake down like a numbers runner by throwing a brick through his window and then pretending they that's a great <laughs> sequence and they pretend that it's a, a, a different racket you know it's like the mafia got word that this guy's like running numbers so they smash his window and pretend to be like, hey, we're just checking in. We heard the mafia is shaking people down. That that kind of stuff. That's and, great. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, sneaking, sneaking outside of people's windows and listening to their phone conversations as a way of illegally tapping their conversation. Uh, they're basically two characters who are just young and don't give a shit. Early on in the book, uh, uh, Wahlberg says that um, there are four phases of an unlucky policeman's life. Cockiness, care compromise and despair and mentions very specifically that weasel and ferret are still in phase one they are swashbucklers which i really enjoyed you know that because i i was thinking about where our other cops kind of fall in that i think despair definitely sums up uh aloysius uh mackie and his partner martin wellborn very much um but so it's so you're right. There is there's a lightening of the very dark material by cutting to things like ferret and weasel, and their shenanigans. And there's a, a whole police academy type uh, shenanigans that go on with the, the the chief where they drug his coffee and basically just do things that you know are yeah. completely reprehensible. It's his but pipe. They drug his, his pipe. pipe. His pipe. You're right. They 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 put weed in his uh, yeah. or dope in his pipe. So that's what happens. Um, so yes, with the exception of Martin Wellburn, I would say almost every character from top to bottom in this book is reprehensible in some way. Almost every character, I would say. Oh, without a doubt. Without a doubt. I I would even say Wellborn himself doesn't escape entirely unscathed. It's just that his hangups are very... They're a lot more genuine than some of the hangups these other guys have. Mackey's hangup basically is that he's having trouble getting it up, you know. When he when he can get it with the yeah. woman, he's just completely impotent. Um, Ferret, you know, has a gun pointed at him by a suspect that doesn't go that is out of bullets and doesn't go off. So he's kind of, you know, 
dealing with his own mortality, you know, with uh, having this near-death experience. Yeah, he sort of, yeah, loses his mind because of it. Yeah. You know, he talks about he's breaking down when the killers, when the suspect has the gun trained on him, that he's like crying and begging for his mommy and stuff like that. I mean, this book is, it's heavy shit, man. It's heavy shit. And that's so why it's hard to to describe it as well, because there is so much humor in it. And it is, there are big stretches of this book. At the end of the day, I would describe this book as mainly a lot of fun. Now the end, Wellburn, I think Martin Wellburn, I think Marty Wellburn, the one who's a little less reprehensible than the others, is shown, his character exists to demonstrate why cops can't be engaged with their job, right? right? That the big revelation about what's making him so desperate and so full of despair, A, his marriage has fallen apart and he's very Catholic, but there's one case that is so heartrending and upsetting about Danny Meadows, about this thing that happens to an eight-year-old kid and whatever you're picturing, it's like worse. It's just that sequence is so much worse. And if you can't find a way to distance yourself as a police officer, if you're Martin Wellburn and you take everything to heart and you take it seriously, you can't get over what happened to Danny Meadows. You can't. No human being can. And I think right. that's why he's less, uh, he has less gags and less shtick than the others and less humor in his stuff because. Yeah. And he's, he's more serious about actually solving yeah. the crime, actually solving the murder. You know, he has to constantly get Al Mackey back on task, you know, to, to, to figure out yeah. the next thing they're going to do. And Wilburn even gets a, uh, has a scene where it's revealed that he, during an interrogation, gave up information that gets one of their stool pigeons killed. Um, yeah. Which is a really fucked up thing as well, but you can tell he's been so fucked up by this other thing that happened that this thing almost doesn't register with him in yeah. a way, you know? But it's like interesting kind of because his partner thinks it's what's really fucked him up. Exactly, yeah. That you accidentally burned that snitch. Which is funny because that, that defines Al Mackey in a way too, you know, what upsets him as opposed to what set upsets Martin Wellborn and that he can't recognize this trauma that his partner is going through the entire time because of his own kind of more superficial hangups, but even more so that he thinks that, you know, him screwing up the police work, you know, is what uh, he can't live yeah. with. Um, well, let me ask you, I have a question for you. As you mentioned, it's a very episodic sort of scene by scene, and it all gradually comes together, but it's very gradual. It's like halfway through the book, and it's not a short book. It's not a quick read. Halfway through, when you sort of first start feeling like, oh, I can see maybe where any of this is going in terms of being an overarching plot. It's, it's a solid halfway through. It's just a bunch of individual vignettes. And even then, it takes a very long time to get to the end and to bring everything together. What was your favorite individual episode? Like, what episode do you remember most? It is funny because there, there are characters and situations that come up that you have no idea how this is all going to end up being tied together by the end, especially because it's the different pairs of, of cops who are running into these... Uh, different people who all happen to have Nigel St. Clair's phone number in their pockets for some reason. And yeah. uh, what it all has to do with Hollywood. Um, I, my, I think my, my favorite sequence of the book in terms of like the individual episodic moments are when they all kind of get together to uh, get Mr. Wheels, right? The, the roller skate guy. 
Yeah. And to convince him that uh, the guy driving around in the black Bentley, who's, you know, supposedly the guy who's killing everybody and, you know, uh, the, the mastermind behind all this is decided to take him out. So they set up this very elaborate scheme to um, have one of them uh, run into him as uh, another skater and then trick him into going to a, a private place where he pulls a knife on him and then he sees the Bentley and the cops come and rescue him. And it's a whole ridiculous scenario, yeah. but it's kind of neat because it's the moment where all the cops kind of come together and really work together uh, at this very morally reprehensible sort of way of uh, getting this guy to yeah. spill the beans on what he actually knows because he's lied to them and they but know some it. Some of like the only like, identifiable police work they do. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That's the kind of stuff we can kind of get behind, even though it's completely egregious and <laughs> wouldn't stand up in any court. Um, what was your favorite? I, the two leading contenders for me are obviously the one where uh, Phipps, gets hit by the piss ball with that when the fight breaks out at the marine modeling session. One of the suspects that's tied to Nigel Sinclair is this young, beautiful, blonde-haired marine who's like posing as a nude model for a group of people who are, it's like this weird group of um, homosexual artists who are like, it's actually like a sex thing and they're like pissing in their clay and like, it's like, turns into like a piss party and they get in a fight with each other though. And one of the piss balls goes out the window and hits one of the street monsters in the head who like loses his shit about it, obviously. And is like trying to figure out what happened and what went down. And it's horrifying. And the depiction of everything, like I just said, a homosexual piss party played for comedy with these street monster cops. Like, I can't defend any of this. This book transgresses in a way that feels, uh, it's not unsympathetic to anything, but it's not sympathetic either. It has this matter of factness about all of this shit that's um, very compelling. But I think actually my favorite sequence is when Weasel and Ferret shake down Tuna Can Tommy, this guy who is, leaving women women nude polaroids himself where he's only wearing a lone ranger mask right (laughs) and they figure out who it is and decide to shake him down i love that sequence it's a great sequence where they finally figured out who he is by doing pretty good police work and tracking to his house and then listening into his conversation and they figure out he has something to do with the nigel st Clair murder as well or possibly the other suspects that they're looking for you know, and, one thing uh, I love about that sequence is uh, he gets fingered by a waitress because she recognizes his voice from when he makes uh, lewd phone calls to her and then he's a regular customer as well coming into her diner. Yeah. So she tells the cops, you know, she points him out to the cops and then as he leaves, the guy gives her a nice tip and she immediately thinks, oh, maybe I shouldn't have, maybe I shouldn't have sold him up yeah. the river, you know, maybe I should have just not said anything if he's a good tipper. Yeah. What's a few, you know, gross phone calls? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. The way that the tuna can Tommy character is treated as well, who's like a serious sex offender, who's leaving nude photos of himself on women's cars and calling them and making lewd phone calls. He's treated like this shit doesn't even matter. The only reason that the narcotics officers have been are even investigating him is the vice cops haven't been able to find him. So the vice cops can talk to story saying this guy's involved in drug dealing as well. We got a tip that he's a narcotics dealer as well. So this case gets 
flipped over to the narcotics cops who are like, what the shit does this have to do with us anyway? This is ridiculous. So they don't even care about solving it really. He's just like a speed bump on a larger road. And that rings very true about how police handle stuff as well, that they're just treated like an afterthought. And it's like, how come this guy wasn't on the police's radar? This like potential serial rapist, you know? And he's yeah. super duper pathetic. He's and a funny it, character too, because he's super duper pathetic. And I think the balance of the humor and the truly fucked up things that happen in this book uh, is really well demonstrated in this scene because when they break down the door, uh, they freak Tommy out so much that he's not able to calm down. So they find some uppers and downers in his drawer and then start popping them into his mouth until he calms down enough to actually talk to them. And it's like, <laughs> it's a very funny scene, you know, where these narc narcotics officers are using drugs to calm this yeah. guy down. Um, but at the same time, yeah. you think about it, it's like, it's Jesus. It's like chubby, redheaded whale with a can dick. Yeah, no, it's completely nightmarish where they're just like throwing them in his mouth like Mr. Burns eating a grape, like just getting them <laughs> popped in there. I could see how that scene um, would play out really uh, interestingly in the movie. I haven't, there is a TV movie made of this. I've never seen it. Yeah, with James Garner and John Lithgow. It's very hard to imagine, and Margot Kidder, that it uh, it's, has much fidelity at all. I think I saw it a long time ago when I was on a John Lithgow kick, but I was looking at its various releases, and I honestly don't know how I would have seen it. I, I, I don't remember going out of my way to find a copy, so I don't know how I saw it if I did see it, although I was under the impression I was until I started reading more about it. Ah, uh, memory. Let me ask you, have you read, um, much, have you read John, much? John, no, I was going to ask you. We both at the beginning said this book is kind of a masterpiece in its own way. Does this make you want to read more Womball? Absolutely. I would love to go back and read The Choir Boys and uh, The New Centurions. And we kind of were talking about it at the beginning of the episode. Uh, he seems to have two different sort of styles where on the one hand, he does the cop fiction. On the other hand, he does true crime that's sort of in the in cold blood sort of vein of being uh, more narrative and more novelesque than most of the uh, true crime books out there. I don't know yeah. if you heard Jeffrey McDonald, right? The killer... Uh, Green Beret reached out to him at one point and asked him to write his book. Oh. Yeah. And Wamba responded oh. by saying, if I did that, it would become my story, not yours. And I think he dodged a bullet on that one. It's safe to say, <laughs> considering uh, yeah. the path that Joe McGinnis ended up taking with his book about Jeffrey McDonald. So. Yeah, where he sort of realized, oh, wait, this guy actually is the killer. Uh, he was also uh, originally commissioned or contacted with the idea that he would be writing a pro McDonald book and then Fatal Vision, the more he delved into it, he was like, I, I don't believe <laughs> this guy is innocent. Yeah. I feel um, like, I feel like Wombaugh would have gone through the same thing. I feel like he would have sniffed it out too. There's just something so strange about McDonald and so implausible about all of his excuses that it's, it's hard to believe that somebody is uh, no bullshit because Wombaugh would have bought that kind of bullshit. Yeah. I mean, Wamba did end up in his own sort of controversy with the true crime stuff where he wrote a book called Echoes in Darkness, which was about the uh, murder of a school teacher and her two children. Uh, apparently he had oh, yeah. promised the cops $50,000 if there was a conviction. The idea being that, you know, a true crime book is not, doesn't really work if there is a conviction. Uh, and so he was kind of called to task 
for that. I guess his journalistic, you know, intrigue was sort of called into question over that whole thing. Yeah, that happened very near where I lived in Pennsylvania. Uh, that story that was like uh, it was before my time. It happened. Yeah, I was going to ask. At close I was going to ask if you know that one. Yeah, claims, yeah. claims the thing. Yeah, no, it was something. It would come up, but you would you would hear about that case occasionally, and it lingered. Certainly, um, they made a, a TV movie about it in '87, which is right when I would have been a little eight-year-old kid living in that area. There, so it was uh, very well known. Also, just to bring it back to uh, to McDonald and Fatal Vision. Guess who stars in Echoes in Darkness TV movie miniseries? Oh, uh, is it Gary Cole? It is Gary Cole. It features <laughs> Gary Cole as well. His uh, um, true crime TV era of his career. Yeah. <laughs> pre Lumberg roles. Yeah. Womble is not a man who's, uh, that I'm going to defend as a person or defend the perspective of his book or defend any of that. It's just really sledgehammer effective, really like kick your ass kind of book in a way that uh, I just I haven't read a book that really kicked my ass in a long time uh, in the way this one did, where it feels like it did it on purpose and he's in control of what he's doing. And this book is exactly what he wants it to be. And you feel exactly what he wants you to feel at every moment. And, can, I, can right? I ask you? Yeah, I agree. I, can I ask you? I don't know how much Ed McBain you've read. But it seems like McBain being, you know, sort of the East Coast version of Wamba with his 87 Precinct novels. Um, do you have an opinion on how they compare? Yeah, I don't like the Ed McBain stuff. Ed McBain is a, is a strictly paid by the word hack. And I was actually thinking about his books in relationship to Wamba. They're, they're phony and they're false in a way that this book is not. Um, the thing that I think if you want to look at its redeeming qualities from a moral perspective, is that it's very truthful. Everything about it rings true. Mm-hmm. When things are ludicrous, when suspects are behaving terribly, when people are engaged in horrible behavior and they're greeted with a kind of callowness and thoughtlessness, that all rings really true. When people are being, the people in this book are narcissistic and self-involved, they're self-pitying, all of these sort of things that uh, end up being played a little bit for comedy because it's just, God, how awful can the world be? And the answer is plenty awful, you know? Mm -hmm. And that's a big theme of this book is like, I hope you all fucking understand how bad of a world it can be out there, how bad of a world we're living in. And it doesn't have to goose it to do it at all. The, The 87th Precinct stuff are much more straight ahead procedurals where like the cops sort of complain about the coffee's too cold on this stakeout. Mm-hmm. They're not, they, they read as purely fictive to me. And, mm-hmm. and I'm extremely, I've only read like seven or eight of them and I'm extremely unimpressed by them. Uh, and that's why I think that's another reason in comparison where I was, you recommended this and I was like, God, do I want to read a cop book? I don't like reading about cops. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, there's some Donald Goings I like, but it's really, it's really not my bag. And the 87 precinct, I think is like the lodestar of my disinterest in, uh, in cop fiction. Yeah, I agree. I, mean, I haven't read much Ed McBain, so I can't comment on that, but I, 
Um, I mean, what do you got? I, I guess compare it to in general to other gritty cop books. It's interesting to think about its place in crime fiction. You know, like that this part of the seven, this time in the seventies and nineteen eighty one when this book came out, uh, it was veering towards you know a sort of interesting kind of detachment from reality that kind of made it more interesting, more surreal. James Elroy called Wamba a right-wing absurdist, which I think is kind of interesting um, way to look at it. Yeah, that's very fair. Yeah, so it's it's a funny because it's two things really clashing with each other, but both of them are kind of interesting when you place them next to each other. And I think when you have and like... And to be clear, he means uh, absurdism in in the sense of like... Uh, philosophy absurdism you know he he means in like the Camus Kierkegaard sense absolutely I think that's exactly what he's talking about and I would agree with it Um, but when you like think about things like you know Williford doing books at this time and you know uh, headed towards the Hope Mosley series in the late 80s it's interesting to think about like a direction that it was sort of heading in where there was this sort of moving beyond the paid by the word procedural sort of approach to these sort of books and a lot more philosophical, a lot more, you know, black comedy and a lot more absurd in that way. So I definitely like to read more books and find out more about it. The last thing I really wanted to talk to you about um, the glitter dome, because it's considered a revenge novel against Hollywood, assumedly because of his experience on the choir boys. Oh yeah. We haven't even talked about it. Yeah. Yes. Since we're our, uh, uh, largely a movie website. <laughs> we should bring up the movie aspect of this. Um, I, I enjoyed it because even though there was a lot of the kind of usual get shorty type of, you know, ridiculous Hollywood structure that doesn't really exist. I didn't think it was too broad. You know, I didn't think that the characters came off like ridiculous art types. I, I thought that he did a really good job sort of, uh, showing how the Hollywood structure and the exploitation yeah. of uh, the exploitation yeah. of this uh, this system is a lot like the way that what the cops are dealing with, you know, and the kind of sleaze and grossness that are involved is ultimately what breaks our poor boy Wellborn in the end, right? The fact that he can't be with this woman because she'd rather run off and work with a bunch of guys who have collections of kitty porn, you know, notoriously. Uh, so I thought that that was kind of an yeah. interesting angle too. I think it, it's a satire, but it's more interested in both its depiction of police work and its depiction of Hollywood. It's not interested in the big fish. It's interested in the little like minnows and nurse sharks and like pilot fish hanging around at the edges of these crimes and of the Hollywood system. And that's really what it's more concerned with is the secretary that they meet or the guy who is providing the phone service. He used to be a producer and now he's washed up and has a little office on the studio lot. And he's just a messaging service for this uh, porn production company, this child porn, potentially snuff film production company. Yeah, that's Um, a really good scene too. It's a really interesting character. Yeah, and I think Wamba cares more about that than scoring easy points about, uh, you know, there's jokes and sort of observations about, like, what actors are like and what producers are like. And I think they're, by and large, 
both true and sort of cliches. I don't think it has some great insight about Hollywood, but I think it's fairly truthful and um, uh, certainly matches up with my experiences fair enough. I don't think it ever gets Get Shorty broad. Or no, I don't think so either. I think it, it really cares more about the, like, the woman who the studio head sets Al Mackey up with to like, have a, a cloakroom tryst you know, so she can advance her career, essentially. That character is a very funny, memorable character who gets a, a short amount of time. That's what Lombok cares about. He doesn't yeah. care about the studio head. He gets a lot of mileage also out of just the cops being completely un, un, unaware of this world, you know, and be completely out of their element whenever they like go to, the, to a Hollywood party or go to interview the producer because so much of their work is based on, like, you know, uh, profiling people. Right. And like knowing how people are going to react or behave yeah. and knowing what, how they're going to be able to trick them whenever uh, Mackie or Welburn go into talk to a Hollywood person, they really don't know what angle they're going to come at them with, you know? So that's sort of an interesting contrast too. And the, to just to spoiler alert, cause we touched on it a little bit. The overarching conspiracy of the book is Nigel St. Clair, the mogul is killed because he is involved in a pornography ring that is recruiting young people to go to Mexico to make a movie. And do we get more of a clear sense of what happened than that? The implication is what everybody who sort of knows these things, the, the girlfriend, there's a, uh, is, she a, is she a script girl or is she a production designer? It's the girlfriend of, uh, of a young prostitute. She's a middle-aged lesbian. One of the few characters in the book presented with like, who has some measure of dignity and intelligence in the book. She sort of susses out because she's in the film industry. This is not just kitty porn they're looking to make this has got to be something more serious because of all the links they're going to to hide their identities and how much they're paying and wanting to film it in mexico and just a lot of it for her as somebody who's kept predators at bay in her own life and career is adding it up right yeah. and this mogul's killed because he's screwing somebody over or in over in his head and that's what the overarching conspiracy is and all these young people that sort of have the mogul's phone number are people that have been recruited in some way to potentially be in the snuff film that seems to have never gotten made right and she kind of becomes a better cop than they are because she figures yeah. it all out right away because she knows that world because she's lived with that world. And like you said, she's had to fend off the predators of that world, the sharks that are in the, in the, in the water. So yeah. she becomes a very interesting character in a book that doesn't have a lot of time for its female characters. You know, the ones that it does give yeah. time to in individual scenes do become very interesting. Yeah. Well, that's, I think the reason for that is, is it doesn't have much time for any of its characters except for the cops. Right. Yeah. Right. And there's no female police officers. Yeah. That wasn't a criticism. Well, yeah. Yeah. No, you're right. I just mean, there's some books that seem to not care. Like Ed McBain doesn't have any use for female characters, but that's because he doesn't care. It's just, this is more like a, an artifact of the uh, way it's structured and put together uh than anything else i would say because it's a really a book about women again you were talking about where crime fiction had gone i always think of the friends of eddie coyle and george v higgins work being a certain tributary of crime writing drying up like taking the dialogue driven 
crime novel as far as it can go. But like Friends of Eddie Coyle, this book is really about men's relationship to women more than anything else. It's really about these guys thinking about the women or see the Martin Welburn and Al Mackey characters. It's really about their relationship to women. The Glitter Dome is a place that you don't go to get drunk. You go to get drunk and meet women. And so it has that same thing where, you know, Friends of Eddie Coyle doesn't have any time for its female characters, for its women characters, either female characters, females. I feel like I'm, you know, sound like an MRA group talking guy. But it's the same thing where this book is also insistently about the women that are off screen, you know? Mm-hmm. And are in their own ways uh, as unknowable yeah. to the cop characters as the Hollywood system. And it's interesting too, because it's, you know, some of the big breaks in the case are like the, uh, the guy who they essentially figure out committed the murder. It's his daughter is caught up in it. And it's about this pathetic guy whose daughter has become like a runaway and he can't save her, Peggy. You know, whose street name is Jack and Jill because she's great at giving hand jobs, and her nickname is her her fake name, her nom de hand job is uh, Jill. But it's about him being a really pathetic, sad dad. Uh, anything else to say about the Glitter Dome, Chris? Or would you like to like to tell us what your dessert for this book would be? I will. I will talk about my dessert. I will say that this book really stayed with me. That I don't know if it hit you as much, but this book bum the fucking hell out of me (laughs) like this was a book that that hit me exactly how it was supposed to and there's just stuff that you know that i'm going to have a really hard time shaking from it and uh and it and it had you know it's a sad book you know it's it's funny what i was gonna say i feel like there's something appropriate about quoting woodrow wilson saying about birth of a nation it's history written in lightning that's <laughs> this this book too is also a history written in lightning in the same kind of like uh you just said that about birth of a nation are you sure you want to say that about the glitter dome kind of way <laughs> you know where I, don't 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 put me don't 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 kill me for having such a strong reaction to this book and uh and for uh admiring it on its level for that uh, for whatever reason I was able to meet this book precisely the way it wanted me to meet it. And it, and it worked for that. And it's, and it's a vile, appalling, shocking, pessimistic, negative, funny, ugly, absurd, mean spirited, strange, original book. I agree. I felt the same way. You agree. I do. It's a very sad book, but it's a very fun book at the same time. And I, I like, I think it reaches that moment at the end where Wellburn says, and I don't have the quote right in front of me, so I'm going to paraphrase, but he says, it's not, it's not all evil. It's not good. It's just, a, it's all just a trick. It's all just a show. You know, I think it really earns that ending where Wellburn yeah. kind of ends up where he is. So it definitely, it kicked my ass too. Yeah. Absolutely. No, you say, how do you make this? Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, God, God damn, that book's a bummer. But it's so much fun. It's also so much fun. It's a pretty, it's, it's really, truly, it's a, it's a remarkable book. Even if you want to throw it in the fucking ocean after reading it because you hate everything about it. And I think it's a book, if you hate it, feel free to hate it. It's full of ugly ideas and ugly expressions and maybe doesn't separate clearly enough Wamba's own feelings on this stuff from 
sort of characterization of a world, you know? And I think if you want to say it's hiding behind trying to be real and gritty sometimes to just engage in simple mockery, that's that's probably fair too. You know, I, I won't fight you on that. If you say, no, fuck this book, it's all bullshit. I can see that perspective as um, my dessert pairing. I am going to go with, to keep it on the James Elroy tip, I recommended Cop, which is based on a uh, James Elroy novel. It's based on uh, Blood on the Moon. I am going to recommend for my dessert pairing, just to, just to make things less of a bummer, My Dark Places by James Elroy, which is Oof. the best true crime book I've ever read. And it's an L.A. story like this, and it's about the seedy side of show business, and it's about misery around a crime. The book is the true story. James Elroy's mother, when he was a child, was strangled to death with her own stocking, and the murder was never solved. And when he becomes an adult, he goes back and uh, meets a cop named Bill Stoner, and they get together to solve this cold case and solve the murder and find out who murdered his mother, uh, James Elroy's mother. But in doing so, it's also about dredging up every complicated feeling and misery and negativity that Elroy has in his life as a result of his mom's unsolved murder. And uh, it, if Glitterdome is tough, this is the you know my dark places is steel <laughs> oh forget about it the glitter dome truly is a breeze compared to my dark places which is one of the most unforgettable things you can ever read and i think elroy's best book i think it's far better than his crime fiction which i'm lukewarm on which i find to be variable uh from top to bottom even within individual books i absolutely agree i think it's the best thing he's written it's very tough as you said but uh, like the Glitter Dome, the, the, there's, there's a middle section about Stoner and his past and another case that he was on that is absolutely thrilling. It's a yeah. page turner. Um, so just sort of a story yeah. within, in the middle of the story. No, he's a god, he is a goddamn hero cop. Yeah, he's a hero cop. Stoner is a hero cop. You just read this and you see where every, who, who wants what they want to be is Bill Stoner. Every Joseph Wambaugh wants to be Bill Stoner in their life. And it's really, really hard to be. Um, John, what is your dessert pairing? Uh, well, as uh, true to form, I don't have like a really interesting thematic link up to go with the Glitter Dome. But I did just recently read the latest Easy Rawlings book, Charcoal Joe, written by Walter Mosley, uh, which is uh, takes place 20 yeah. years after Devil in a Blue Dress, the first one. And uh, we meet Rawlings in L.A. that's set during the Watts riots. Um, and it's just as engaging as you would think based on that setup. Uh, and uh, it's just him basically trying to find out who killed a guy that a uh, gangster son has been framed for murdering basically. But um, Mosley is very hit and miss, especially the easy Rawlings books. You know, some are really memorable and other ones much less. So they just, you just kind of forget them after a week. I would put this one in the, in the top tier though. I think it's really good. It was written a couple of years ago. Um, and, but the fact that, you know, that it's it set in LA during a really important time for uh 
you know, the, the city and for the police department, I think is a you know, good enough justification for saying, read some Walter Mosley. Yeah, I agree with that. And I agree that that one's really good. And, uh, and that, uh, that's an interesting pairing. It's an interesting pairing too, because obviously as a, as a uh, black writer, an African-American writer, Mosley's perspective on Los Angeles and police work it's very, uh, is, very different. <laughs> yeah, the exact opposite of Wombos. And I think that yes. that's a good dessert pairing because if the casual racism and homophobia and, and cruelness of Glitter Dome is too much for you, the, the flip side of that, the, that Mosley uh, is great at handling and in, in a way that it isn't preachy or on the nose or, or self-righteous, uh, but still very pointedly political writer, Mosley. Mm-hmm. I think that that's a great thing to cleanse your palate. That's a great piece of cake to eat after like, you know, the rancid steak of the glitter dough. I agree. <laughs> and, and both Maybe those things. I don't want to eat garbage. And both of those things, by the way, you can order at the glitter dough. They have the rancid steak, and then you can order the delicious cake uh, with your Telemore Dew Irish whiskey. Um, also, we didn't drink. mention the proprietor of the of the of the glitter dome is a little old man who loves to steal from the cops. He is always giving them incorrect change and taking their money off of the bar, pretending to think that they meant to tip it to him as they get more and more drunk. Which I love that character too. Who. Wing. Yeah, like how could you be so bold as your whole plan is to steal from police officers all night, every night? <laughs> With them completely aware of what he's doing at the same time. Exactly. That's, I think it's a great uh, uh, touch and, and note to set the tone of that world that we're going to be in for the whole story. Yeah. So this was a complete shot in the dark. I'm John, glad we both liked thank you it. For recommending this. John, I'm not sure if we are set for next month. Uh, right now, if things hold, we are going to be doing Pet Cemetery with Wendy Mays of the Pet Cemetery podcast. And we're going to talk both about the movie and the book on next month's Pulp Fiction. So I'm looking forward to doing that. If you want to read along with us and keep up, uh, that's your cue. John? Final thoughts? Uh, looking forward to doing Pet Cemetery. maybe. It's, uh, it was just brought up to me that it would be the first time I reread it since I've become a parent. So that should be fun. Yeah, but it, it can't be worse than Glitter Dome. No, <laughs> That's yeah. my feeling on it. Is I wasn't looking forward to reading it as a parent either. Uh, and then I was like, well, I just got through Glitter Dome. Certainly can't be worse than that. All right. Thanks, everybody. Uh, Have a great night. Have a great night. Wait, John, I haven't read Pet Cemetery before. Are they bringing the kids back to life so they can make kitty porn with them in Mexico that are snuff films? Is that what they're doing with them? 